Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Jim Cochran. Jim is from the Probat Clinic branch in Victoria in the city of Westminster, London, one of a series of clinics that provides high quality back care utilising percussion therapy. Um, Jim, welcome. Great to have you on the programme with us today. Uh, yeah, I'm very pleased to be here, Scott. Yeah, it's a fantastic to have you as well. Now, a good and effective leadership is coming under the microscope um, hugely at the moment with the fallout of the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, no less. Um, tell me, how has it been for you over the last few weeks uh, trying to deal with that? Um, I, I, if, I, if I had said it would be, it, it was easy, I'd, I'd definitely be lying. I mean, obviously... You know, uh, it's completely unprecedented the 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 change in the situation on an almost daily basis. So, yeah, I can't uh, I can't say it's been easy. Yeah, absolutely. And drawing on your own experience from um, not just, of course, directing yourselves through this crisis, but also from your everyday experience. Um, do you have any advice for business leaders who are facing difficulties at the moment? <laughs> I, I I mean, really. Um, you know, I, I, it's a huge challenge for, for, for business leaders because you need to, you know, look at what the uh, advice is, uh, decipher what it means for your organisation, and then trying to to implement it as uh, as best you can. But you know, I I, I think it's you, you know listening very carefully and 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 working with the people in your your, your organisation very closely. Absolutely, because a good and effective communication at the moment is uh, more relevant than ever, isn't it? It's very much a team Absolutely. effort, not just a one-person show. Yeah, and I, the, the 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 other thing, you know, that that you know, I, I mean, I don't think there's any question this is temporary. I mean, we don't know how long mm. uh, 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 temporary is going to last, um, but I, I think you know. We've shown the human race has an incredible ability to uh, solve problems and, and act fast when it has to. Um, and I, I think you know you've got to see through the you know the very short term you know terror that we, we that we might be living through, uh, and look uh, beyond and make sure we don't make decisions that uh, are, are purely based on short term. We we have to you know look. Uh, at the three months and, and beyond, and I have no doubt that that uh, you know we'll find uh, a solution to this, and and, and uh, it, it'll it'll be over uh, quicker than we think. That's quite interesting because um, I think as a leader, it's really important to have sort of both proactive qualities and also reactive qualities as well. Now, being proactive, it involves having plans in place, having a um, common direction that everybody's working in, both leader and the team working with them. But then being reactive, it's that ability to be able to change tact and change direction based on um, the advice that's being given. But also with being reactive, it's really important, as you said there, not to make snap decisions and really consider what you're doing that's it's important to strike that balance isn't it absolutely absolutely and i mean you can't you can't help uh, being reactive because um you know things are changing on a on, on a daily basis and obviously you have to decide you know uh, uh you know we're given advice and, it, and it's not a, a, an absolute uh, directive you're given advice and you have to 
uh, understand what it means for your organisation. Um, uh, so, so I, I don't think you can avoid being reactive, but as long as you're reacting with a view in the future, um, I think it's uh, I think it's okay. And, you know, uh, uh, um, I think the government's doing has done a, a, a quite a phenomenal job in trying to give confidence and trying to make sure people uh, um, can keep their, their salaries going. Um, you know, over the next uh, three months uh, through the worst of it. Uh, and I, and I, you know, although you know, we can always say we could have been faster. Some of the things that they're doing, I think, in terms of testing and uh, some of the, the the things that will be put in place, will mean that you know, three months is a is, is a reasonable time frame to 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 hopefully get back to some kind of uh, uh, normality. And, and you know, I don't know what that normality will be, but but I'm sure it's going to be better than what it is right now. Now, you mentioned there um, the role of government in instilling confidence and having that sort of aura of positivity that we will get through this. If we take that away from times of crisis um, in a business context, it's hugely important in the everyday for a business leader to create that atmosphere of confidence to sort of get the best out of the team around them. That's important, isn't it? I think it's it's, 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 it's fundamentally uh, important. And I think uh, in, in terms of you know what makes uh, good leaders that you know in enthusiasm, that sincerity, the integrity. Um, you know, communicating that, building loyalty, having decisiveness. You know, those those things that I think we're looking for uh, in 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 the government right now, when it's when it's very clear that the country's looking for direction. Those are exactly the same um, uh, traits. Um, that, that, that business leaders, uh, you know, and company uh, uh, leaders, you know, the, the best of them are, are delivering uh, in, in their organisations on a, on a daily basis in, 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 in any business. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, those qualities there, which um, good leaders ought to have. Do you think that examples of good leaders are born with those qualities ready-made, or do you think that is something that leaders can learn and develop throughout their careers? I, I think I think there's there's masses of books written on the subject. I think for some people, um, you know, uh, it, it, they have some of those traits that it's easier to, um, you know, you know, adapt into the the, the role of leader. But I, I think there's plenty um, of leaders who um, maybe not have had them um, and recognised certain weaknesses. Um, and, and developed them and, and grew into you know phenomenal leaders. And I think you know there's Steve Jobs and, and guys like that mm. um, are, are uh, you know well cited as you know maybe having uh, developed a style over 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 time. So I, I don't think you need to be born a, a good leader. I think you can uh, develop the 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 qualities. I think there are certain elements that are more difficult. Um, I, I, I think charisma. Is, is not something that you know is easy to to, to learn, um, and in, in in some areas it may well be uh, um, you know beneficial as a, as a leader to, to have it. But there are other um, important facets uh, of leadership that you can learn. Absolutely, and you mentioned a charismatic figure there, like Steve Jobs, for example. Um, is there somebody um, like Steve Jobs, or even if it is Steve Jobs himself, that's been an inspiration to yourself in your own leadership style? Would you say? 
Um, you know, I, I, I worked with some, some you know, fabulous uh, leaders. Most of my career was in the, in the mining industry. Um, and I have worked with, uh, you know, people like uh, I knew, uh, got to know Ivan Glazenberg uh, very well, who, who is an incredible, uh, incredible guy. Uh, I worked with Brian Gilbertson, who was chief executive of uh, um, BHP Billing, who, you know, uh, just, you know, phenomenal uh, uh, leadership. Um, and, you know, in my early careers, I, I worked with a lot of uh, people who were inspiring. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, having exposure to, to inspiring leaders is, uh, you know, is something that, that you know, that, that lives with you. It is really interesting that you bring up um, such examples as well, because it's important to note as well that not all examples of good leadership tend to be seen because they may not be individuals who are constantly in the public eye or are celebrities, for example. In everyday situations, you can have people showing good and effective leadership. And quite often that does go under the radar. Um, Before we um, wrap things up, um, however, um, do give me an idea of what you think the next 12 months is going to hold for um, yourself. Jim and for ProBat Clinic and what you hope to achieve in that time as well yeah for sure I mean the, the clinic um, uh, the clinics have done uh, tremendously well over the last uh, few years right now of course we are um, you know we're in central London and, and you know um, in terms of uh, medical service it's, it's not been uh, essential. So we're going through a really, uh, really tough time right now. Um, you know, we're looking for the support of, of, of you know, the, the people that we rent our buildings from, the government in terms of rates, and um, you know, we're trying to, uh, you know, maintain and and you know keep our staff on side. I think uh, the next three months will be extremely difficult. I think that. Um, you know, we'll get through it. Uh, you know, it might take a little longer to get back to where we were in terms of of, of numbers. But you know, in, in our business, the the you know the future of the health service is moving away from physical care. Where you know that is uh, where we focus on on physical care. So we're able to um, address conditions that that I, I think the, the national health service. Um, is is really not paying too much attention to. So I think the the opportunity for the business is fantastic uh, going forward. Um, uh, I think that when we come out of this, the government will be you know pushing to stimulate the economy, um, and we will uh, get back to um, where we were in terms of the, the growth and the the economy. So I, I think it's going to be tough. For the um, for the next few months, um, but I'm sure everybody, uh, you know, will 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 be looking to spend money uh, and get back to normality, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a 12 month uh, time frame. So I'm I'm pretty optimistic uh, that if we get the support that we need right now, um, that we uh, will be growing faster than ever uh, 12 months been on. 
Absolutely. And let's hope we start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel sooner rather than later. Um, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the programme today. And I think it would also be fantastic to have you back on in a few months time to look at this retrospectively and really see how things have panned out in that sense. So again, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the programme with us today. Pleasure, Scott. It's been fantastic having you. Um, we now Thank hand you. Over, Thank you. Fantastic. Um, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus Trescothic who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive 
um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was 
I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of. A litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. 
um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on the sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were 
Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so was, <laughs> was I yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, and you're wearing re uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.